Chris Burkhardt has long since been one of my favorite photographers. His images transport you in a way that not many can, and I believe a lot of it has to do with our shared interests of surfing and just being outdoors. The aspect of relatability is unquestionably a role when viewing his work. Chris has sold prints, yes, but he's also created books. One of my favorites is High Tide, which features stories behind his images and includes some fantastic photos of fellow North Carolinian Ben Bourgeois in the Caribbean. The book also hosts some cold water adventures, a subject which became Chris's TED Talk in 2015 entitled The Joy of Surfing in Ice-Cold Water. Burkhardt serves as an ambassador to Sony and sheds a little light on what it's like being able to work with such a major company and how that partnership formed. He offers some great advice as well for those looking to create similar partnerships. This is a quick one and I really enjoyed getting to know Chris and it was great he dedicated the time considering he just returned home to California from his 43rd trip to Iceland. I think you guys will find his story to be fascinating. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. Man, I really, really appreciate you taking the time. Um, We sort of have a, a... a long running history of together, but you probably don't even know about it because I dealt with, I think it was your assistant four or five years ago when building my initial website and licensed oh, cool. one of your photos. <laughs> awesome. That's rad, man. That's, that's awesome. And what, yeah. what's the, what are you up to now? What's kind of the, what's kind of the emphasis on, on career wise? Yeah. So standard H itself is, is, um, basically a a lifestyle brand focusing on automotive as inspiration. Um, so standard H is, you know, the term used, uh, referring to the gear shift pattern. Um, so the subtext or sort of the, the, um, the tagline, if you will, of the brand is for those with drive. So it's the double entendre of automotive as well as entrepreneurship, you know, kind of, um, business centric type stuff too, as, as well. Um, when I first started the brand, it was the, uh, dare I say Southern California lifestyle brand, which as if the world needs another one of those. Um, so it was very like surf, but automotive. And so over the years, I sort of scaled back on the surf inspiration and focused more on the automotive because again, uh, apparel companies are saturated as it is and uh <laughs> yeah 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 it's a challenge right now you know there's so much out there and yeah. and they're all starting to kind of morph together which is the problem you know hard to find something that you feel like stands out yeah i mean i can name six brands that you know fit the description exactly of what i just said so um <laughs> exactly it is what it is but um well listen when um where did you grow up I grew up here, Central California. Okay. Um, yeah, San Luis Obispo. So nice. Did you go to school there as well? I did. I did. I went to school here, and I went to high school here, and then I went to college um, at uh, Cuesta College, which was a junior college. I went for about eight months before I quit, and okay. that was the extent of my my um, my schooling. Um, yeah. yeah, I quit. I quit to pursue photography. So it was kind of a it was kind of a wild sort of odd, you know, transition into just trying to, um, trying to, I think, you know, make the most of, of that time and going out and shooting surf and everything. So. Yeah, sure. Now, what were your parents doing when you were growing up? Um, that's a good question. You know, my, I was raised by my mom, um, single parent till I was about 12. And then, um, she, she married my stepdad and he was a, um, my, my stepdad was a stud, you know, he came into my life at, at this perfect time and he was a um, super blue collar, you know, just always has been, our family always has been and, and basically kind of really taught me the importance of work and that ethic that came with it, you know, um, to this day, he's still landscaper and landscape architect and, and, you know, cuts grass and mows lawns and he's also a beekeeper by trade. And so it really taught me the understanding of what it's like to put in, you know, a, a, a eight to 10 hour, you know, hot summer day, you know, growing up for years um, through high school and whatnot, mowing lawns and everything. And I realized really quickly, I was like, I don't want to do that for a living. Um, <laughs> not, not that it wasn't an honest and noble trade, but it just, um, it really, it really set a precedent to me that like, this was something that I just didn't want to 
be doing for the rest of my life. And, and I yeah. think that I respected that and I respected him, but I, I just wanted something a little more. Sure. Sure. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I've read that you're self-taught as far as being a photographer goes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a funny word to, to apply to it. Right. Because I think like, you know, in some ways we're all self-taught, like we learn things about our craft. Um, and, and we, 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 we kind of pick up the trade slowly and, but surely. And so I think that's kind of a big component of it is like, um, I, I jumped into what I thought was the best resource for learning about adventure photography. Um, because there wasn't some, there wasn't a school, there wasn't a way to kind of like gather that information at, at a college. And I just knew that if I wanted to pursue this, this was going to be something that I had to like carve my own path, um, so to say. And that's kind of what I did. I basically just would spend hours and hours driving up and down the coast of California in my truck. And I applied to various internships and tried to learn about the editorial process from magazines and, and tried to intern under a couple of photographers that I respected. So yeah, it was a, it was a wild experience to say the least. Um, definitely an interesting time in my life and a time that I look back on really fondly because there was so much sacrifice given for that career. What, uh, who were some of the photographers you interned with? So I, I studied under, um, a guy named Michael Vitale and he was a large format landscape photographer in the Southwest. Um, he still is out there just creating beautiful work and he, his work really emphasized, um, uh, big, large format, eight by 10 film transparencies. And that work was just so significant, so unique because it, be, be, before I ever took a photograph of action sports or shot anything like that, all I really cared about was shooting landscapes. I mean, that was my first passion, mainly because that was sort of the inspiration behind photography in general, right? That was all I cared about. And so that being said, it was kind of one of those scenarios where um, I, I, that was my, my dream was to go out and photograph these landscapes. But I realized after interning with Michael for a couple months, really quickly, you know, this is the best thing about internships is you, you learn really fast, like what you do and what you don't want to do. And I realized that I had no chance of having that be my career path because there was no, there was no way for me to make a living, you know, doing that. And there was no way for me to like have a gallery and have the best equipment or even spend remotely the amount of time that it would take to, uh, to go out and create these beautiful works of art that he would create. You know, it would, it would take him two to three days to wait for the right light to get it. And then that was it. So like a modern day Ansel Adams or something. I mean, he is, you know, his work is incredible. Um, yeah. Some of the highest selling um, work uh, in the world, you know, prints in the world, he, his images would sell for, you know, 15, 20, 30, 40, $60,000. It was incredible. But wow. so much that was built upon the clientele he had made. And so that idea of creating a body of work that was meant to be valuable, meant to be like, um, really last a long time was became evident like in the very beginning right and i think that was a big component of like what i hoped to apply to kind of what my work was like how can i make work that sticks around for a really long time that feels significant and feels relevant for just as as long as as i possibly can can make it path was going to be photography like what were you shooting with back then I mean, I shot digital early on, but before that, you know, I shot film for years and sure. the first camera I ever bought per myself was I bought at a Goodwill auction. Um, I spent like 160 bucks and, and the thing never worked once, <laughs> um, but that's what you get when you do an auction. Right. Um, so I, I was fascinated by photography and I, I borrowed my girlfriend at the time, um, her mom's film camera. And I would go out and shoot that camera all the time and run film through it and just loved the experience of it. And then slowly that progressed about my own film camera, like a Nikon N90S and then upgraded to a Canon 20D. And that was like my first digital camera. And that really changed things for me because the, the process of going out, you know, and shooting a roll of film and then all of a sudden just having, having, you know, to wait, you know, hours or this and that, just that the cost was so prohibitive and, and shooting digital actually made things so nice because you could shoot and shoot and shoot and learn so quickly. I think in, in many ways, digital kind of like ramps up your, um, your sort of 
your learning curve really fast. And I love that about it. That was one of my favorite things. Cause I, I guess the, the, the effects of your shot are immediate. Like you see, you know, if your ISO is wrong, you change it immediately and you can figure it out on the fly, so to speak, and not a week later from the, the photo mat. Exactly. So it, it teaches you things like almost instantly. And I think that there's some great value to that and knowing that you can kind of learn immediately what you need to learn and kind of apply those things like in the next instant, you know, like, um, so, so digital was, it was a huge proponent of the work I like to do. And I also like, really like to push the limits of what I was shooting, whether it was low, whether it was astro and so, so with that, there's a lot of trial and error and sometimes, you know, having the right film is, is so challenging. So instead of having like 10 rolls of film that were halfway winded up and I was having to like retrieve the film, that was a nightmare. Um, being able to switch the ISO was incredible. So I, I think that's really where my career, I, I feel like it, it began. So gave you the confidence to make it a career to say, yo, I'm not going to go to school anymore and I'm just going to go shoot. Like, what, did somebody see a photo of yours and kind of poach you out of school to, to hire you or how did that go down? I, I think, uh, I think the reality is that, is that there was no opportunity there. Um, to be honest, the opportunity had to be created. Right. And that's exactly what I did. You know, I, when I, I quit my job in 19, I quit school and I was like, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to create a career where there is none for myself at least. And, and that's exactly kind of what I did. Like I, I, um, I knew pretty much immediately that, um, there was, there was no real work. So I, 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 I loved landscape photography and I love this idea of shooting surfing, but I would have shot anything at that moment in time. I would have shot anything that would have, would have presented itself. Um, I shot senior portraits. I shot wedding, anything. Cause the whole point was like, if I'm quitting my job and I'm quitting school, I want to be able to support myself with a camera. And I don't care what that is. I don't care what that looks like. Yeah, the pride for that was to was to support yourself, and and I think that in that moment, you know, I, I knew that there would be the personal things that I'd work on on the side. There would be, you know, my my own portfolio, so to say. But but in that time period where it was so volatile, and all I cared about was putting food on the table and like, you know, making sure my my tires didn't have metal coming through the rubber. Um, I I just cared mostly about trying to, you know, make money at that time. So I would have done anything. I think your landscape background is truly evident in your, your shots. I mean, you, you really do encompass very frequently the, the, the vast landscape of whether it be Alaska or, you know, Iceland or wherever, um, which, which I love. definitely played a, played a huge role in how I like to portray my work, whether there's a subject in there or not, whether there's a human, whether there's a vehicle, whether there's whatever. I mean, to me, it's all about the surroundings. It's all about the area. It's all about the, the landscape itself. That, that to me is the character, right? That's like the main character. And I think if anything, the, the subject or whoever occupies this space, that's really just someone to kind of allow you to connect to or relate to right in that, in that environment. Right. Um, it's kind of funny because I, I have in my notes, honestly, to talk about this, but because it is sort of awkward because I can't explain it. Um, so I'm hoping you can. Um, but like, yeah, like some some photos are just photos and they capture a specific moment, obviously. Mm-hmm. But almost I think you were kind of alluding to it there because of relatability, maybe. But like yours often capture um Yours make me feel as though I'm there and experiencing it in the exact same moment. So how do you, how or why is that possible? Um, I think that there's a relatability to good images, to strong work, whether it's a film or whether it's a photograph. And to be honest, it's actually not that complicated. What I, what I try to do is I try to bring the viewer in by often shooting in lighting situations i'm gonna i'm gonna get real technical about this but it but it's meant it's meant to come back to an emotional state right so i try to shoot in in lighting situations where there is a timelessness created and that timelessness can be created by shooting silhouettes by shooting images where there isn't logos littered throughout the scene um 
by doing things where the image in some way just feels timeless, right? And and that being said, what what I mean by that is like you can't date it 2020 or 2010 or or 1964. And so by doing that, you, you create a relatability. You create a sense of relatability. And, and with a use of strong silhouettes um, and, and strong lighting, you can create a sense of relatability where any person that's ever, you know, kayaked the coast of California or, or surfed any type of wave, big or small, they can relate to this, you know, female subject on a wave, you know, in California, you know, surfing against the the you know the setting sun like that's the beauty of it i i really aim to create photographs for the viewer um the viewer not just the specialist not just the person who spent 30 years perfecting their craft and only they can relate to it and yes there's photos that i shoot that are very much like um you know uh, uh, like you know the one the the, the one tenth percentile of, of humans could ever relate to it but i i try to do it in a way that feels connected to nature and the greater surroundings that being said obviously the landscape is the first and foremost the important thing so that sense of relatability that you're you're communicating that that's a very much a cognitive thought that i'm bringing into the work and it's it's i think what's made ultimately me in some capacity successful with what i've done is like um, people can relate to that work and they, they hope they hope to be able to potentially be there. And, and I, and I really, really appreciate that. Sure. Well, I mean, I would ask you almost a predictable question of like, what makes a great photo, but I I'm kind of, <laughs> what's that? Don't do it. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. 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 Well, I don't want to ask, but like, I kind of want your opinion on that question or if, is it just relatability? Cause that's sort of what I'm picking up here. Um, I think a great photograph begs a great question, right? That question being, what's the story, right? So if you see a photograph and you want to know more about it, that's a good photo to me. Doesn't matter about the lighting, doesn't matter about the subject matter, doesn't matter any of those things. But ultimately, those do play a part, right? Those create strong images. I think that um, if you want to get down to it technically, you know, there's a lot of things that make a good photo, but I think what makes a great photo, one that's meant to last is one where you see it like, you know, the migrant farm workers in Napomo, California that was shot during the great depression. Like you see that photo and you're like, tell me that story. Like, what is that? What is that woman going through? What does that mean? Like that's a strong image, right? For me, I, I want to create stories where, there's sort of what's put out there, what, what's, what's put in front of you. And I, I think that old adage, like a photo is worth a thousand words. That's, that's awesome. I love that. I love that saying, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't add your thoughts to it. That doesn't mean you shouldn't give your story. And I, I hope to create images that will ultimately, yeah, they'll share. Um, they'll, people will be willing to, to want to know more. They'll want to dig deeper and maybe they'll scroll up and read a caption. Maybe they'll open the page of the book and read the story. Maybe they'll watch the film. That's kind of about the image itself. I don't know. But the point being is that I, I really hope to create images that kind of speak to those things. Yeah, no, I love that. Um, what is the gear or camera you typically reach for, for most of your photos? Are you using the same lens for much of your photography like what do you reach for what's your uh, yeah i mean there's a there's a handful of i mean it's a, there's a full gear list to be honest like the best the best way to access that would be on my website because i have like a list of everything i use but but typically i'm shooting with the a7r4 it's a sony mirrorless camera that's just built to be high resolution that's what the r stands for it's like a 60 megapixel sensor that you know, what it lacks in autofocus or low light photography, it makes up with incredible resolution. And I, I really, you know, creating books and prints and, um, and commercial work is a huge part of my business. So I think that's why I focus on using that. Um, of course, if there's a job that requires a low light camera, I'll reach for the a7S III or the a a9. Um, but with that camera paired to it, I usually lean towards a 16 to 35 is like kind of my go-to lens. I love the intimacy that's created from a wide angle lens that's sort of like a forces you to get closer to your subject as opposed to just standing way far away and zooming in. I mean, that's a, that can be beautiful too, but for me, I, I tend to want to be close and, and sort of, um, I think that's just a characteristic, a, you know, character trait of mine too. I want to know what's going on. I want to kind of like, you know, 
if I'm shooting someone jumping off a cliff, you know, there's a good chance and cliff diving, there's a good chance that I would want to be doing that too. Um, so I think there's a closeness, there's an intimacy that I, I hope to create in images. Um, and then uh, with that too, a 24 to 70 is, is great. Usually I have those two lenses in my kit. And then beyond that, um, I would probably have a couple prime lenses, maybe a fisheye, maybe like a 20 millimeter F1.8, maybe a 35 for portraits or something. So sure. yeah, I try to keep it as small and svelte as I can, but obviously sometimes some other stuff sneaks in there. It just depends on the job, you know? Um, yeah. Is you remain creatively motivated? Uh, man, that's, that's a tricky question, you know, because ultimately I think, um, I think that the reality is in order to, in any capacity, you know, stay creatively motivated, it, the, the way you do that is what you do when you're, you're not working. Right. I don't think there's any way to stay motivated creatively when you're like nonstop nine to five, picking up a camera or pick or whatever it is, your creative endeavor. Like if you're doing that every single day and that's all you do, maybe in the beginning, that was like a real source of inspiration. But now I pick up a camera and it feels like work. Um, and so I think that, with that, one of the key things is I try to make sure I take time to enjoy what I love and what I care about doing without a camera. I also take time to have things I enjoy that have nothing to do with photography. Um, that being said, you know, climbing and cycling and, and yoga and surfing and what have you. Yes, those are all things that I've, I've documented at certain points, but they're also things I keep very much for myself and very much... Um, I enjoy privately at times. So um, I think that's, that's just a huge component of it, you know, is finding that thing that's for you. And yeah. what I always say is like when I'm I, so much of my work is on the road, right? I'm not really shooting in California a lot. Um, I wish I was, <laughs> but so much of what I'm doing is out traveling around the world. And so that being said, when I'm home, my focus is like, even right now, it's just like, I want to fill up my well of inspiration because when you are working on an assignment, you're just dipping from that well over and over and over. You're just constantly taking water, right? So how can I fill myself up? And a lot of times I fill myself up by spending time with my family. And again, like spending time exercising, spending time, whatever your, your focus, your meditation is, whatever fills you up inside, right? And, um, and that's really the, the, the most important thing. I think that's the biggest thing that I, I, would, I would advise people to consider is like, you know, making sure you're, you're giving yourself that time, you know, sure. to, uh, to stay inspired. Yeah. Um, what do you consider to be the hardest part of your job? Um, the hardest part of my job now is being away from my family at times, because that's what I've built my career around. I, I sat, I can't make a living just sitting at home. Um, it doesn't work like that. Right. Um, so having to be on the road, is challenging. Um, having to leave loved ones behind is challenging. But I would say that, you know, maybe 10 years ago, the hardest part of my job was the culture shock or being in freezing cold conditions, just feeling the hypothermic aspect of like sitting on a beach. Like that was challenging. I would say nowadays, you know, to be honest, like, but that's become easier, you know, risk and, and all these components of like what's hard becomes sort of second nature at a certain point. Like you, you become, more intelligent, you become smarter about how you do things. Things become easier because of the way that you um, respond to them and react. That's just a part of how it, how it, how you operate as you get older, right? Yeah, for sure. I would say that the hardest thing about my job is finding a story worth telling and going all in on that because that's the reality. It's like when you when you are investing your time into researching. If anybody's ever written. A, a script or written a written a, a treatment for something they understand like there's there's investment there's research there's time you're spending you, you're doing something where you don't know if it's going to pay off you don't know much about it so to be honest that's kind of the biggest and most challenging thing is like you're you're going down these multiple paths trying to find these stories that you're hoping are valuable and you're hoping are significant only to maybe like pitch them and put them in front of somebody to get funding. And then you just don't know, uh, you don't know how those are going to pan out. You know, you don't, right. and, and you hope, you, you hope that you do, but that's, that's a scary part of it. The research, the energy, the time spent, potentially wasting time is really challenging. Team now. Um, I have a team of seven. Okay. Two, two part time, five full time. 
not including myself. Um, and basically what we do is we have, you know, a, um, sort of those people who they who work with me that they, they oftentimes go out on assignment. Um, I have like kind of two assistants in house. I have a photo editor in house. I have my operations manager, Mike in house. And depending on the job, some of that team will go with me if it's a more specialty job, like I've got to go shoot something in heli skiing in Canada or whatever, I might hire um, an outside assistant who's got more talent or skill in that regard. Um, right. If I'm going to go shoot climbing and need somebody to help me rig a big wall, like I'm going to hire somebody who has more experience there because I want someone that complements my uh, experience and or has more than me so I can rely upon them. That's what makes a good assistant. That's what makes a good team. Um, but that being said, you know, ultimately the team you build, it, it's it, everybody's different. I could, I, you know, I don't want to tell anybody, oh, this is what you need because my business is set up in a certain way where I have these objectives I need to hit and I have these kind of buckets that I operate in. And I just want to make sure that like everybody understands they have, they can, they do it differently. That's kind of how it operates. And sorry, I'm yawning. I'm still jet lagged from Iceland. I just got back like 48 hours ago. So. <laughs> Good, man. It's all good. Like I said, I appreciate you taking the time. Um, aside from photography, like what comes easy to you in your work? Um, to be honest, nothing comes easy. I think the only thing that comes easy is like being willing to suffer, you know, um, <laughs> that sounds so silly and so stupid, but the reality is like, I think a lot of the images that I've created have, have had a lot of patience required and waiting and planning. And I think the thing for me is like when we're sitting out there and it's like three hours till sunset and people are like, Oh, I'm getting hungry. You know, I'm like, Oh, okay, well I'm going to hang out and just sit here for, you know, four more hours um, and wait for the, to see what the sun does. I don't know, right. even if it sucks. Right. Like I think that that's something I'm good at. I don't, I don't really, you know, have a list of traits that I feel like I'm, I'm good at. I would say that, um, the things I've worked on that I've tried to perfect that maybe someone might consider me talented at would be um, I spent a lot of time public speaking in the past. Um, after doing my TED talk in 2015 or 16, I really emphasized that aspect mainly because I wanted to learn how to be a better storyteller. And I, I knew that that was one of the main delivery methods of telling good stories is standing up on a stage and being willing and able and not too afraid to like try to kind of get your point across in, a, in an entertaining way. Yeah. So, so that for me has been a huge part of my life and career. And that's kind of parlayed into other things, whether that's teaching or educating or workshops or whatever. Um, I think a big part of what people are, are hoping to come and experience is you you know, presenting this work, um, whether it's a film or whether it's a book or whatever. So um, I've really aimed to kind of give people a, a sense of that. Are you a watch collector, but having trouble finding something cool and unique? I mean, the last thing you really want is what everyone else has, right? Well, this is where my friend and former Standard Age podcast guest, Tim Jackson, comes in. He and his wife, Jana, own Passion Fine Jewelry in Solana Beach, California, where you'll find an incredible assortment of independent watches waiting for you in their shop and online. And if you're getting engaged, have an anniversary coming up, or simply have another reason to buy jewelry, they have you covered. Passion Fine Jewelry also employs a goldsmith on staff for any custom desires, so you're able to go that route if you so choose. Visit Passion Fine Jewelry when you find yourself in Southern California, but they're also open 24 hours a day at passionfinejewelry.com. You can also find a wealth of information through Tim's blog, independentintime.com, where he covers anything independent watchmaking related, uh, among a plethora of other information. So check that out as well. I've really enjoyed creating these podcasts on behalf of Standard Age and sharing each of these personal stories with all of you. We each have goals, and it's the entrepreneurial spirit that inspired me to start the company. You can further support the brand and the podcast by visiting standard-h.com to pick up your choice of merchandise. And as always, thank you for listening. Lastly, if you have a moment, please rate and review the show. It makes a tremendous difference in keeping these things going. Now back to my conversation with Chris. So I'm, I'm assuming Sony, you're a brand ambassador for Sony then? Yeah. What is that? What is that relationship like as a photographer? Like, is it just product flow? Is it? Uh, there's a lot of people who Sony supports. I've. It's funny because 
I've had a lot of photographers ask me like, oh man, I want to get on that program. And I'm like, okay, great. So do you shoot Sony already? And they're like, no, I don't. And I'm like, well, there's no way they're going to support you because they're not looking to just pay somebody or give someone product to make a switch. Like I, I started shooting Sony seven years ago. Um, I was the first person working at the magazine that I worked for that was shooting Sony. I was the first person in my industry, surf industry, shooting Sony. Like it, you know, I had no support. I bought all the products myself. And, and, and I, I came into this program, the artisan program at its, at its impetus, right? It had been around for a couple of years, but um, I really kind of got connected in there because they saw what I was doing. And I mean, that's the right way to, to be recognized. It's like people right. see what you're doing they realize you're using their product and they want to support you in that regard. I mean, and I think just, I have a, a real uh, opinion on like handouts, you know, like I don't ever, I never expected any handouts early in my career. I never wanted any. And I think that a lot of these things should be earned. And so I, I don't look at it as a matter of like, Oh, well, how can I get on this program? Or how can it's like, how can I work hard enough so that my work is noticed by the right people and then I can be supported by them. Right. And nowadays, yeah, I, I get, um, I get a certain amount of allowance to get Sony products throughout the year. Um, and and I, I get support on projects that I do. So one of the beautiful things is like, I have a budget where I can, I can pull from throughout the year to tell really good stories for the brand. Um, That's awesome. Just getting blindly paid by somebody is kind of meaningless. I would rather create something with them. It benefits them and it benefits me. And that's really, I think, how I try to set up all relationships that I work with. Like, yes, I love being able to put food on the table and collect a paycheck. That's awesome. But I would rather create work that then can create more work. And that's really, I think, that the smart long-term plan of how you, and, and the chances are you'll get more money from those brands or those partners if you do it like that. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. Um, when it comes to shoot locations, do companies that you work with choose them or do you already have a game plan and, and kind of sell a story, if you will, like how, do, how does, how do you pick your spots? Yeah. That, you know, it, it all depends. Um, a lot of my work, I think the bulk of my work is commercial photography and uh, commercial photography takes me everywhere, whether it's, um, you know, the, the, the beautiful Alpine lakes of British Columbia or um, the deserts of, of the middle East. Right. So um, that being said, there's a couple ways to answer this question. One of them being like, I, yes, uh, a big portion of the places I go or the work that I do is based upon my ideas or my concepts. Um, but that's only because that's what I've put out there, right? So I'm not hired to do work that I'm not good at. And I'm fine with that. I don't want to go shoot, you know, studio lit portraiture somewhere in New York. I'm just, that's not my thing. I don't care. Right. So, so when someone comes to me, they're usually having a project in mind that fits the mold that I've created already. And so if you, if you can follow that rhetoric, you understand that like, yeah, for me to end up somewhere in a rad, you know, nature environment, it, it would, it would make sense. Um, I mean, the advice I give the young photographers is like, you're only going to bring back the work that you put out there. Right. So right. nobody's going to be like, Oh man, Chris would be excellent for this you know, random blah, 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 shoot. We've never, we've never seen him shoot anything like this, but we just have a feeling he'd be good at it. No, like all of my portfolios I've invested in creating, I've invested in, in building myself and I've invested in making um, so that they can apply and they can connect to, I guess you could say um, people that I, the, the brands that I want to, so that when the time is right, and somebody's like, I want to hire Chris for this automotive shoot. You know full well that I've invested the time, my own money, um, my own expense, everything into, into creating a portfolio I'm proud of, right? So um, that being said, there's a trust that's created by the brand to oftentimes come to me, somebody who has spent you know a lifetime doing expeditions in the surf world and, and whatnot, um, knowing that like I can fully plan and execute and I might have a location in mind that's better than anything they thought of. Right. I think that's what has brought me so much work going to Iceland over the last, you know, 43 trips is uh, because, wow. because I, I built a career and I built sort of a, a body of work there that people realize, Oh, well, Chris has, um, you know, a, an understanding of this location that, that we would love to tap into. Right. So it's, so it's allowed me to do shoots there um, and allowed me to do work there that, um, that I don't think I would have otherwise had I not invested that time. 
Sure, you must be considered almost like a pseudo local at this point, like just knowing people in restaurants and stuff. It's, it's great to be connected to the amazing local community, but yeah, I mean, I definitely rely upon them heavily for yeah. all that support and help. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Do you have any story where something has gone horribly wrong and you've made lemonade out of these lemons? Like, is there is there one particular shoot where you're like, that photo came out so sick and it was worth all this havoc? Um. I mean, there's been a lot of times where things have gone wrong. Really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, more time than we have time to talk about today, sadly, because there's uh, there's been a lot of times just, you know, where everything has kind of like all your plans are out the window and, and everything. I mean, I had one experience that was pretty wild. Um, my first trip to Norway, we were in the, the very northern tip of Norway set to explore this remote national park area up in like Vardo. And we had researched all these roads. We had, you know, we working with the magazine. They sent us there working with the tourism board. Everything was set. Like it was all dialed and they had had a crazy snow year. And we got there and we realized that this, you know, 10 day road trip that we were about to do was not going to happen whatsoever because wow. all the roads were completely covered in snow, like huge, like eight foot wall of snow, just getting out there. And we got to this small town in the middle of nowhere where there's literally reindeer, like there's more reindeer than people. And we were like, holy crap, we are screwed. And that's kind of the situation you get into where you're like, you just have to start thinking about alternative options. And I remember going to this contact we had in the town and being like, how can we get out there? Can we use sled dogs? And so we looked into using sled dogs, um, which was ridiculous, right? Because we had like clothing and wetsuits and gear and pelican cases and it was just like, it was so over the top and, and we didn't want to do it at all, but it was like, we have to salvage this story. And then the other option was snowmobiles. And so we rented snowmobiles from this guy who had just gotten off a cruise ship and we met him in his like, you know, four story apartment, like, you know, the four story of this random apartment building in this really remote part of Norway. We were so close to Russia. The border was like right there. And, um, you know, he's like, I'll take you out there. I have a cabin, like blah, blah, blah. So we're like, loading up with like reindeer meat because that's what we're going to survive off of for the next five six days we can't bring all the food that we had purchased yada 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 we get out there and it's just like absolutely so remote and so gnarly and way nothing like we had planned for at all you know and, and that was like because we had planned to do day trips right so this this road trip that would have allowed us to do like day trips exploring this place driving an hour a day was all of a sudden like a, a five hour, you know, snowmobile ride and with all our supplies. And then, you know, you're on the beaches changing in the cold. And it was just so gnarly. And anyway, we get back to after that experience, right? We're like pretty thrashed. It was like a 15 day trip in Norway. And we get back from that experience and staying at that cabin with these people we didn't know, had no clue. It was kind of, it got kind of intense too, because there was a lot of drinking going on and we're just like, holy cow, what did we get ourselves into? We don't know these guys. We're out of the cabin all by ourselves. It kind of started to sound like banjos were playing in the distance at one point. Um, I'll, I'll spare you some of the details there, but we get back to town and we're like, okay, we're going to jump on this ferry because we can't drive to where we were hoping to drive to. They, they've had too much snow and we're going to go to the next town. And from that town, looks like there's some open roads. And we got on that ferry with our, with our van and I'm with like, three surfers from the East coast, two of them have never surfed in the snow before. I'm with myself. And it was like, it was, again, it was like a long trip, like a 15 or 18 day trip in Norway, exploring the North. And then these other islands, the Lofoten islands. And we get on this ferry and we're like, okay, cool. Finally, we're out of here. We're going to go somewhere where there's like a little more access. Um, Cause we assumed as we go further South, less snow, right? We get to this next port where we're supposed to get off. It's supposed to be like a four hour ferry ride. And I get a call on the loudspeaker and they're like, Hey, Chris, can you come up here and they're like, uh, we can't get off. There's just, there's too big of a storm. And I'm like, okay, that's, that's fine. Like, no worries. Can we get off in the next port? We can drive back up to this town. We were planning to stay in. Sure. And he's like, no, he's like, this boat's not stopping for like 48 hours. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, yeah, he's like, he's like, the storm is way too severe. Like we have to go through these inner passageways and we can't make our way out to these towns. And like, the next spot we're going to stop in is going to be like some remote town, like, way south and so for us to drive back would have taken like like 
30 hours of driving to go back three days so we got (laughs) so we got down to that town and then we were like okay so we have two options we can either drive we can get off this boat and drive nine hours to where we had hoped to be in like six days or we can drive 30 hours back up north and we just were like screw it we stayed on the boat we got to uh, where we were going and then we, we, we drove down to the Lofoten Islands. And even that was like a gnarly, super real drive for a kid from California, right? Who had never driven in Arctic conditions. We were there in early March. Um, the sun was just, just starting to peak above the fjords, right? And um, it was really real. And I remember like having to call the uh, kind of, um, having to call the rental agency and explain to them why their cars were like, 2000 miles south of where they had planned for them to be <laughs> they were like wait it was kind of like the whole thing like the full the first like 10 days of the trip were basically like just a total crap show oh. i was like so shocked and and but then we got to lafote and we got to where we were supposed to go and i mean everything kind of turned around and it became one of the best trips of my entire life like we got these incredible waves you know in this remote bay um with just beautiful like you know you know beautiful vertical granite cliffs behind and just um, we got to really explore and experience Arctic surfing at its finest. And that was a, that was a real, like, I think some of my greatest images came from that trip and work that I was really proud of. But, um, but I, and I don't think I would have appreciated it had I not had that first initial experience. What, um, can you share what brand that was shot for or like how people could find those photos? Um, I mean, that was, that was, that was like, 10 years ago. So um, I, okay. I'm unlikely that you'd be able to find the article, but it was, I worked for Surfer Magazine on staff for about eight years. Um, I worked for uh, Transworld for a while, then Surfline on staff for a number of years, and then Surfer Magazine on staff until about 2014 or so. And, um, and yeah, that was like a, my, the, the impetus of my career was really shooting for magazines and creating work for them and everything. So um, that's what it was for. I've been back to Norway since that same spot, like three or four times, and I love it to death. Um, but yeah, that, that first trip was really mind blowing. It was the first time I really shot in like real, true Arctic conditions. Some of the largest outdoor and adventure-based brands. Um, you've also done some products yourself, obviously, by way of books. And like you said, you sell prints and stuff. What's it like publishing a book? Like, I, I have actually your High Tide book. And uh, so I was just kind of curious. Um, I mean, that story is in there. That that yeah. story is in that article. So yeah, that is a way you could find that actually. Good good point. That High Tide was kind of a collection of, of like 12 years of basically like surf photography and stories. And we basically took the, the magazine articles and sort of extracted them down and just put them into this thing where it, it goes through like India and Japan you know, Norway and Iceland and the Pharaohs and everything. So. Yeah. Um, so how did that book in particular come about or any of your books for that matter? Is that all self-published type stuff or do people approach you about that? Um, I've done a number of, of things over the past couple of years. My first book was published through Chronicle Books. It was called The California Surf Project. And it was a road trip of the length of California from north to south. And that happened around 21 or 22. It was really early in my career. And I still feel really grateful to have had that experience because it really set the stage for me to understand the importance of long-term work and and investment into long-term projects, books being one of them. I love the idea of making books and making projects that do speak to a number of kind of, um, a number of topics in a more, in a more, um, I guess you could say slow pace, right? Um, I've self-published a number of books. Um, I've worked with different publishers. Uh, High Tide was done through a publisher in Amsterdam named Mendo. Um, they're a European, obviously, publisher who wanted to make a book. Uh, I've worked with um, a number of different small boutique publishers, a number of larger publishers. Um, I have a contract right now for a book with Abrams. That's um, a large publisher in New York that that's uh, we're working on something together. But in between those projects, I've done a number of smaller books, um, like my recent book on Iceland's glacial rivers called At Glacier's End, that book is still, you know, one of my favorite projects of all time, just because, it, you know, when you pour your heart and passion into something and you make it exactly how you want it. Um, and also to the subject matter is a little deeper. It's, it's, it talks about the environmental impacts of, of dams and uh, geo and aluminum smelters in Iceland. Um, 
and I wanted to make a book that addressed that. So ultimately, yeah, I think that was one of the key components was um, I've kind of gone through both realms and it just depends on what your goals are, right? It depends on if you want to make a million copies and get it out there to the world and it's more of a marketing piece or if you're focused more on the content and what it says and that it, that it exactly replicates your voice. I think that's kind of the key thing is like, what's the, what's the end goal? And with everything I do in my career, in my life, it's always important to work backwards, right? Like, where do you want to end up? Where do you want it to be? What do you, what do you hope it to look like? And then work from there. Um, what would you say you attribute most of your success to? Um, probably, um, I would say most of my success, I would attribute to um, the example that my mom put forth for me, you know, being a single parent, raising a kid. Um, I, I never had real any, any examples of weakness in my life. And I had examples of these super strong, badass, you know, women who like, you know, gave a lot up for me to have life in general, but also like a, a good life and have opportunity. And so I've I've always seen that. And I think in many ways, it's just, it's just made, giving me the mindset that like, yes, with enough effort and enough energy, you can do anything you want. And so I would say that that's a big source of inspiration. Nowadays, my kids are a big source of inspiration, but also just sharing stories with people who I know can't access them. I mean, that's why I wanted to set out in the beginning um, and see the world and bring those stories back was because I was bringing them back to my family, to my, to my mom and, uh, and ultimately, yeah, that's kind of, I think, what it is now. I'm bringing it back to millions of people, but it's the same methodology. It's the same concept, right? Your hobbies. Like, what do you do in your time off? Uh, well, time, it's funny because I think, like, hobbies are relative, right? Like, I don't, I don't really knit or crochet, but I would say right. that anything <laughs> I'm doing that's a hobby is usually kind of geared towards me doing something work related, meaning like if I'm riding my bike, I'm training for something that might be for like this or that. I mean, yes, I, I take time to do that for myself and it's fun to do that. But I think that just like my hobbies usually involve staying in shape in some way. And it's so easy just to get like complacent. And um, I think my work requires a lot of me. And so I'm always kind of trying to consider how I can um, keep up with professional athletes or just kind of keep my head on straight. And so um those hobbies really just involve being outside in some capacity, you know, uh, whether that's in the ocean or, or on the road or, or in the, in the mountains. Or riding a road bike mostly. Um, mo both, you know, I'll ride a road bike, I'll mountain bike sometimes. Um, cool. I, I enjoy more activities that kind of get me out and allow me to explore places I haven't been like the repetitive nature of certain activities kind of kills me. I just, I just get so bored mentally. So the idea of like going backpacking or, or, or riding through a long, spending a long day out in the wilderness where you're disconnected, like that's so fulfilling to me. That's what I yeah. love most. Um, you know, it's like, I don't, I don't really like ultra endurance running, but I love spending a day covering like 30 to 40, 50 miles at a time, just because that's so fulfilling to be out there for that long, you know? Right. So I'm assuming you surf, right? Uh, was that, was that kind of your first love? Um, I would say the ocean was my first love in terms of a landscape to document, but, but, you know, growing up at the beach was more of like a babysitter than anything. It's not really like this. Um, cause like it was just always there. I think, I think for me, I, I personally enjoy skiing more than I enjoy surfing because it's something new to me and it's something that wasn't around growing up at the ocean. It was like, I would get dropped off at the beach with like $2 and my mom would be like, I'll pick you up later, you know? And it would just be like, you'd hang out there. So I never had, you know, and honestly, spending a majority of my life in the best waves on the planet with the best athletes on the planet, it kind of burns you out because all those epic days, you aren't in the water surfing. Right. You're just kind of documenting it. So yeah. to me, it's really nice to have things that, that aren't the focus of your career that you can really focus on to kind of as a hobby, I guess you could say. Sure. Um, you've obviously had your fair share of travel. Um, Land Rover defenders end up in your shots from time to time. Are you a big car guy? Um, my career, uh, prior to photography was going to be, um, in the automotive world. I, I've owned like 16 cars since I was 16. My first car was a 57 Chevy Bel Air, the two with a 283. Yeah, it was a four door and I restored it. And then I had a 32 Ford Roadster, a 51 Ford pickup. And, um, 
and a lot of other cars that I would, I would care not to name because they were total nightmares. And uh, the problem with that was just like, I, I, as much as I loved restoring cars and I had a, I had a, um, a scholarship to Wyotech when I was like 18. Um, I just, I think that the fact, the idea of being stuck in a garage somewhere didn't seem super entertaining to me. Right. And um, I love the creativity you could express by automotive customization and, and what that would be like. But I just, I kind of fell out of it when I really started to pick up a camera and, and realize that there was other way to express oneself. You know, I loved work using my hands. Um, and so, yeah, um, I would say that that's, that's the funniest aspect is like, that was my impetus of my whole life was really um, in the automotive world. And then I was like, ah, this might not be as fun as I think. So. Well, um, Chris, I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, it's, uh, you know, a pleasure to, to, to get the FaceTime. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I would be stoked to, to do this again and jump on another call. And we could dive into all things cars and chat about, chat about all that stuff too. That would be awesome as well. Yeah, yeah, would love that. Sure. Okay, man. Well, safe travels. And uh, thanks again for taking the time. Yeah, brother. Thank you so much. Hey, have a good one. And, and I hope 2020 is the rest of it is going to treat you awesome. Yeah, likewise. Thanks, Thanks Chris. See ya. See ya. I'd like to thank Chris again, as well as his team for helping set this conversation up over Zoom. As always, I'd like to thank Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for providing the theme track, as well as to Clear Audio for providing the noise cancellation headphones. To further support the podcast, please visit standard-h.com forward slash podcast, where you can make a $5 contribution to help support the podcast and its production. I really appreciate you guys dedicating your time to listening to these episodes. They're a blast to make, so your support is greatly appreciated. Another episode will land in two weeks' time, and until then, take care of yourselves. Bye, everyone.